You know you're gonna be singing that all day long now, right? You can't help but sing along. I, uh, I'm back. It's been good to be back. I, I thought I was totally over this, and then I'm coughing a whole bunch between the services, so I got my lucky Buckeye cup because <clears throat> we know that Jesus loves the Buckeyes. And uh, <laughs> if he were here, yeah, the 10 of you who are from Ohio, you're with me, all right? Hey, uh, if you're visiting with us, we just want to welcome you. It always blows me away how many people are visiting Kingsway for the first time each week. We got our meet and greet after the last service. We've got another one after this service. I'd love to shake your hand. Uh, I met two different families. Literally, their first Sunday was today. And uh, just welcome, welcome, welcome. Whether it's first one or been here for a while. If you've been here for the last couple weeks, first time you've heard me because we had a guest speaker last couple weeks. I took a little mini vacation and uh, also took some time to just dream and pray and seek the Lord on behalf of our church and study about heaven and hell and the end times. It was great. It was what, what better, more could you ask for if you're a preacher? So I want to share real quick just a little couple of celebrations. I mean, God is doing great things, great things. Yesterday, if, if everything happened according to the plan, I heard we had three baptisms yesterday. We've had two that I know of already today. There may be more, and uh, it's just cool. God is continuing to move. I believe that puts us over 130 decisions for Christ uh, for the year. And um, not only that, before you clap, you clap at the end of all these, uh, not only that, but we finished a series called Money, God, or Gift uh, roughly five weeks ago or so. I can't remember how many weeks ago. But since that time frame, the last five weeks or six weeks or so, uh, we had this. Check this out. So we had 534 individuals or families, so kind of homes as we would call it, they committed to uh, some sort of a financial commitment to God out of that series, which is our second highest number of people ever. Before you clap, hang on, because it's good. It gets better. Out of that, there were 211, either individuals or families, so realize an individual is one, but a family is bigger, who committed to tithing for the first time. 211 people. You don't have to clap yet. It gets better. Over that same five-week or so, six-week span, 40 people gave for the first time ever at Kingsway with an average first-time gift of $143, which is a really big deal. I mean, that's people stepping out in faith, first time ever. And then check this out. How about this? So if you take that same five-week span, six-week span, and you look last year, compare that time span to last year, We are up 12% in giving over that same five-week span last year. And it puts us just under our best year ever for just for that five-week span. Puts us at almost, it puts our second best, but just almost to our best span ever in that same time frame. So I just want to pause and give God the glory for how he's moving and all of you. Yeah. And uh, this is huge because uh, we've been roughly 12% off in our budget and we cut hundreds of thousands of dollars from our budget to make budget. And uh, this allowed us to dream. So here I was praying and seeking the Lord and it allowed me to go, okay, God, can we actually get done with the things I'm praying and seeking you about? And uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your generosity. Keep going. Keep it up. You're doing a great job. And uh, God's got big things in store for us. So all of that is a setup to where we are today. That's not just a tack on. It'll go well with what we're talking about today. Real quick, how many of you have ever seen the movie Vantage Point? It came out like six or seven years ago. How many of you have ever seen the movie? Maybe you don't remember the movie. You're like, I don't know. So here we go. Here's a, a, a picture from the movie. You can only see part of it. You got Dennis Quaid here and, and uh, just some great actors, Gordon Weaver and uh, the guy from Lost. Nobody knows his name, but um, he was the doctor off Lost. And anyway, here was the whole point of the movie, Vantage Point. Basically, there was a crime that took place. I won't ruin it for you. Uh, but they basically, they take a look at the movie through one person's lens, then they come back and they look at it. So right as the movie's like about to resolve itself and you're only a little bit in the movie, you're thinking like, how can the movie be over already? All of a sudden it snaps back and goes and re-looks at the entire event through the lens of somebody else. And then the same thing, and then the same thing. And the tagline for the movie is eight points of view. I can't let me make sure I get this right. It's uh, eight strangers, eight points of view, one truth. 
And what they did in the movie is a modern day version of the book of Revelation. Because what they did is something we call recapitulation. Can you say that? Recapitulation. So they tell you a story, and just before the climactic ending, they come back, tell it again, come back, tell it again, come back, and tell it again. And this is where I land on my interpretation of the book of Revelation. It's called the cyclicist view. It means there are cycles in the book of Revelation. And let me just say this up front. If I'm wrong, and some of the other interpretations of Revelation are right, it doesn't matter. In the end, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to take everybody who loves him home with him for eternity and everybody who doesn't love him will spend eternity separated from him. And if he comes back and your understanding of Revelation was different from mine, but you were right and I was wrong, he still comes back. And if I was right and you were wrong, he still comes back and I will brag for all of eternity. (laughs) Just so we're clear. And this is what my wife has to deal with. Okay, so... This, if I, here's the thing. I never want to recommend a movie in Hollywood because I get it. It comes with baggage and every family is different. You should go to all those websites you use to decide if it's good for your family, but it's a cool movie to watch with the lens of Revelation. Here's why. And I, don't, I spent too much time on this last service, so I'm going to go way faster and, and just know that it's in our app. So if you download the Kingsway Church app, it's in there, this whole thing. You can read it in more detail. But there are seven cycles or seven capitulations, really retelling of the same story in the book of Revelation. Does that blow you away? There are seven. Can you imagine that? If you've been here for any length of time, it's because seven equals the complete number. In each of them, what we see is we see Jesus. He shows up on the scene. He's reigning as king, and then we're told about the end. And so just real quick, I'll just bring you up to speed on just the first two, and then we'll leave where we are today. You can find the rest of those in the app. In section one, the first capitulation, if you will, uh, the first time we see this, Jesus shows up in these middle of the lampstands. The lampstands represent the seven churches of the chapters two and three. This, in general, these churches represent the church in general throughout the present age of Christ's first and second comings. The first coming of Christ is mentioned in chapter 1-5, and the second coming is mentioned in 1-7. It's pretty simple. It's just an overview. Then it goes back, the second section, the vision of heaven, the seven seals, Revelation 4-1 through 7-17, and it recapitulates the whole story. This section begins with Christ exalted on his throne, opening the scroll with the seven seals. The lamb, who is now slain, now rules in glory. History unfolds as a sequence of judgments visited upon mankind, which concludes with a depiction of the final judgment. This section begins with events associated with Christ's first coming in chapter 5, verse 5 and 6, and then it ends with the events associated with his second coming, chapter 6, verse 17, 7, 16, and 17. Now, if you remember at the end of this, here we get down to the end of this, in chapter 7, I believe it's 16 and 17, all the stars fall to the earth, and the sun turns black, and the moon turns red, and everybody in 2015 went, look, Jesus is coming back because there's a harvest moon except the sun never turned black and no stars fell to the earth. And in case you never sat down, you cannot pick one literal thing and extrapolate it and not make all of them literal, which means Jesus better look like a lamb and a lion at the same time. The whole point is not to read into this stuff literally, but to look at the imagery. Revelation is written in what we call apocalyptic literature. It's a genre, it's a style, and this style is very metaphoric. It's highly figurative. And this is huge, by the way, because let's just take one distant planet. Let's just take Pluto. Is it even a planet? Who knows? Poor guy. He lost all his, you know, standing in the family. If Pluto were to go out of orbit and be sucked into the earth, what would happen to the earth? It'd be over cataclysmic. It would be done. 
But what if chapter 7 and those passages are not talking about necessarily a literal event, but a metaphoric event that points to the end when Jesus returns and the final judgment takes place and it will be terrible. As we are often told, it's called the great and terrible day of the Lord. Why? It'll be great for some and it'll be terrible for others. So, with all of that, I'll let you read through the rest of the sections in the notes. You can look them later for time's sake. We're going to keep moving. But here's what I want you to get, um, maybe above anything else. Before Jesus comes back, before Jesus comes back, there's going to be a lot of chaos in the world. A lot. There's going to be wars. There's going to be fighting. There's going to be sin. Spouses and marriages falling apart. Kids rebelling. Churches backbiting and devouring. Gossip, slander, rumors. You name it. You name it. Cancer, disease, and death. Here's what Jesus says. Here's the actual words of Jesus. Mark chapter 13, verse 5. Jesus replied, And don't let anybody mislead you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and threats of wars. But don't panic. What? Yes, don't panic. These things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world as well as famines. But this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. And all the women in the world went, ugh. We have three kids, Matthias, Levi, and Nehemiah. Matthias, we adopted from Taiwan. Levi, our second, was our first biological child, and then our youngest, Nehemiah. And my wife, for Levi, our second, um, we had to induce labor. And so it was fantastic. We went in, and the nurse said, hey, don't worry about it, honey. Um, we're going to go ahead and get you this epidural. And said, you'll never feel a thing. She was like, you are the best woman ever. I love you. And she really hardly felt anything. I mean, hardly. You're nine months pregnant, still miserable. But she hardly Thought everything, anything. And so we didn't do that with our last child uh, who was born in January of last year. So we go into the doctor and uh, the doctor's not available at the time. The nurse said, hey, don't worry about it. And my wife's like, oh, like, I never felt this like before. Because, you know, like there's all the signs of triggers. You got to go in. And she's like, oh, I'm miserable. Can we go ahead and get the epidural? And the nurse's like, no, you're okay. This could take a while. Don't worry about it. We'll get to it. And she's like, but this really hurts. You know, all the women are like, uh-huh. So Finally, the anesthesiologist comes in, and he puts in the epidural, and she kind of relaxes, but she's noticing, like, wow, I'm still feeling a lot. Well, guess what? It didn't work. So after some miserable stuff, the, the anesthesiologist comes back out, and he's trying to, like, fix it, and he adjusts it a little bit. Nothing happens. So finally, like, her pain is intense. Why? Because it's getting more and more and more intense. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And as she's getting, and I keep going, honey, you're fine. The doctor said it's probably working halfway. Some of us are slow learners, all right? <laughs> and sure enough, the, the anesthesiologist in the room, he said, I'll tell you what, I don't normally do this, especially this far along, but let's go ahead and take it out. We'll put a new one back in. And as soon as he said it, the doctor came in and said, there's no time, move out of the way. My poor wife did what women have done for thousands of years, and uh, they didn't even give her a stick to bite down on. Um, here's a lot of pain. But I'll tell you what, right on the other end of that intense pain, you know what happened? She held a baby. And this is kind of the picture that Jesus is trying to paint for us. There's going to be intensity, and it's going to be bad, and it's going to get worse. But on the other side, joy. On the other side, glory. It doesn't make the pain go away, but Jesus will make the pain go away. But here's a question. Ready? In the middle of all this chaos, what are we going to do? Well, the reality is we have a work to do. 
We have a work to do. Well, what is that work? And that's what I really want to narrow in on. There's two things I want to say about this today. We're going to keep coming back to this. What is it we're supposed to do in the middle of this life? Because it is what it is, right? Here's what Jesus says. Mark chapter 13, verse 9. When these things begin to happen, watch out. You will be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must first be preached to all the nations. But when you are arrested to stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just as what God tells you at that time. Sorry, just say what God tells you at that time, for it is not you. Here's the point to all of this. You have a work to do. What do you do? You keep proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. You say what God tells you to say. And by the way, don't stress about it. You don't have to have your 10 points worked out or your perfect argument. You just say what the Holy Spirit leads you to say. And this, this text right here where Jesus is telling us about the end, this is a huge, huge, huge benefit for us as we look today, picking up where Mark Moore, Dr. Mark Moore left off last week. So if you remember the last few weeks, real quick, in chapter six and seven, we see the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And you can go back and listen to that, but what we find out is war and conquest and death and famine and disease show up and they are wreaking havoc from the beginning until the end. From the time of Jesus the first to the time of Jesus the second, all these things are reigning until the end. And Christians, just because you love God does not mean you'll be exempt. You will get caught up in sickness and in cancers and famines and wars and conquests, it's going to happen to you. So don't blame God when it happens. He's trying to prep you and say, it will happen and you are not exempt. And then as Dr. Moore told us last week, then we get into these, these uh, new things that are coming along and it's this new uh, trumpets that are being blaring and, and pronouncing judgment. And as these trumpets are coming out pronouncing judgment, they're pronouncing judgment in part over those who persecute those who love God. And so we dig into the chapter nine, and I love this. When you get to the end of chapter nine, we see this statement, and I don't love it because of what the statement is. I love it because of the truth in it and what it means for every single person in here. Chapter nine, verse 20. But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. What are they made of? Gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood. We'll get to that later. Idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their witchcraft or their sexual immorality or their thefts. One, two, three, And why is that relevant? If you're visiting with us, you don't know this, but I've been telling you in the book of Revelation, because it's apocalyptic literature, there's these codes hidden in the book. It was written in a language and and in a style that would be confusing to the Romans and others who are persecuting the Christians. And so when they read it, they'd be like, this book makes no sense. That guy, John, on the island of Patmos, he's gone crazy, whatever, just give the book over. But if John had just spelled everything out that he was saying, man, everybody who got the book from John would have been arrested, thrown in prison, or perhaps killed. And so John wrote in code, but when he puts four in there, what he's saying is it's the complete number of things happening on the earth. So pick any four you want. Pick any four. I don't care. Gossip, stick it in there. Slander, stick it in there. Pick any four you want. The whole point is God will judge mankind for all of the evil they have done. And don't look at this list and go, whew, the thing I struggle with didn't make the list. That's not what John is saying. 
It's the exact opposite. In fact, go read Romans chapter 2 when John transitions from the world to even the church, and he says, and you, you think you're so good because you don't do the things the world does, but even you, and then he goes through this litany of things in chapter 2 of Romans. Then he gets to Romans 3, 4, all have sinned and fall short of the glorious standard of God. In other words, we are all guilty, which is why we all, all, all need a Savior, every single one of us. But notice this. Go back with me. Go back to uh, verse, um, where is it? Verse 20. But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent. Here's the point. God is judging this earth. And yes, you can look at earthquakes and famines and droughts. You can look at these things as judgments. Don't get hung up on saying, well, what did those people do to deserve it? No, don't miss the point. It's not that God is meeting out certain judgments for certain people. Well, they deserve it and you didn't. That's not the point. The point is this world is not the way that God intended it to be. So even things like cancer are from the hand of God in some ways. It's a judgment on this earth. Why? Because pain and suffering is supposed to lead us somewhere. It's supposed to lead us on our knees before God to say, we are not in control. We have no power over this world. We cannot dictate the way it's going to work or what's going to happen next. People are going to be evil and evil things happen. So God, we need you. But what happens is some people in the face of that message, they don't land there. Instead, they say haughty and angry and puffed up. And they don't repent. Look, I don't know Steve Jobs. I'm not a Steve Jobs apologist. I don't, I don't know his life from anybody. I don't know if he's in heaven. I don't know. But what I do know is when Steve Jobs was a young man, a boy, a teenager, I don't know, apparently he went to his, uh, his pastor and he was struggling with some evil he had seen in the world. And he said, apparently a good God isn't good or he's not powerful because he allows this to happen. And his pastor apparently didn't have a very good answer. And my understanding, my understanding is that Steve walked away from his faith. Now, some have told me he supposedly came back in the end. I don't know. The point is this. When evil happens in this world, you could shake a finger at God and blame God, or you could shake a finger at man and at the evil forces of this world and say, there's something else going on here. Now, with that kind of setup, here's what we know. God is going to judge the world still many will not turn to Christ for life. In fact, some of you in this room, this will be the last time we ever see you. It'll probably be the last time you step foot in a church and what you'll tell other people is you don't go to that Kingsway church. They'll be judgmental there. And I hope by the end of this you hear that we are not judgmental. We're all sinners in the hands of a mighty God. The question is, which hand are you getting from God, the hand of mercy or the hand of judgment? And I want you to find the hand of mercy. That's what I want. So please hear that through this message today. All right, with that, Revelation chapter 10. You know it's going to be a long message if that's just the setup, right? Revelation chapter 10. Let's ask this question. What are we to do? What are we to do? We're going to answer it. Here we go. Revelation 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun. His feet were like pillars of fire. And in his hand was a small scroll that had been opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea his left foot on the land, and he gave a great shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the seven thunders answered. Now, I keep telling you this, apocalyptic literature, highly metaphoric. If you get lost in the trees and you focus on a tree instead of the forest, you're going to get really hung up real fast, especially if you start trying to dictate and figure out, okay, there's a locust on this tree. What exactly is that locust all about? I'm telling you, take a step back. Now, there are certain things in Revelation, black and white. We know what they are. Why? Because the book told us. <laughs> so sometimes it says there are seven lampstands. And what do we know those seven lampstands are? Seven 
churches. Some of you have been listening. Okay. So there are other things that we can put together really easy, like, you know, the lion of the tribe of Judah stands for who? Jesus. Just like in the next chapter, that same lion is now a slain lamb. And we can look back at the Old Testament and go, oh, I know what that's pointing to, so I know what that means. I know who it is. But there's other times you look and you go, I think it's this. But don't miss, don't miss what God is doing because you can't pinpoint a specific thing. So some of the stuff is really, really easy. I'll fly through them. I won't have time to go real deep. We'll come back to verse one real quick. So here's, I'll tell you up front, here's my theory, verse one. Here's my theory while I show it to you. I think this is Jesus being pictured as an angel. If I'm wrong, it doesn't matter. Either way, this person is standing, this angel is standing with the authority of Jesus if it is not literally Jesus. So that's fine. Either way, he's surrounded by a cloud. Go back and look throughout biblical analogies and metaphors. The cloud is a profound thing. The cloud usually has to do with the judgment of God. So go all the way back to Leviticus 16. On the great day of atonement, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would literally have to mix incense of fire and create a cloud that would hide the high priest from the wrath of God. Then you see in Daniel, the son of man, Jesus will come on a cloud. And when Jesus goes up into heaven, he hops on a cloud elevator, he rides up in heaven, he says, and the same way you saw me go up, I will come back. This cloud has to do with judgment being pronounced. I hope I'm not going too fast. Here he has a rainbow over his head. Is it literally the rainbow of, say, Noah? Maybe, I don't know. But if it was, guess what? It equals hope in the midst of judgment. We go on. His face shone like the sun over and over and over again. When God is described throughout the Bible, he's described as bright and shining like the sun. Jesus on the transfiguration, if you don't know the story, you gotta read it, it's fantastic. Jesus goes up on a mountain and two witnesses show up. Interesting for where we're going. And these two witnesses, Moses and Elijah show up and then Jesus is transformed and he is bright like lightning or you might say like the sun. It is just bright and white. Moses goes up on a mountain to meet with God in the Old Testament to get the Ten Commandments and when he comes down, his face is bright and white and glowing because he's been in the presence of the Almighty God. So why is this angelic being who could be Jesus, why is he shine like the sun? Because he's either Jesus himself or he's in the presence of Jesus, it doesn't matter. And his feet are like pillars of fire. Where have we seen pillars of fire in the Old Testament? When God leads the Israelites out of Egypt, you remember this, he leads them with the fire by day. And then we get into the New Testament and Jesus tells the disciples, you go into Jerusalem, you wait for me and I'll come down with power from on high. And all of a sudden, pillars or tongues of fire fall down from heaven on top of them. This is the presence of God. And what is he doing with his pillars of fire? He's got one feet on the land, one foot on the water. Well, if you were at a distant planet, some, some planet out in some part of the universe we can't even find yet, and they figured out how to get to us before we get to them, and they're sitting around one day, they're scientists talking in some language you don't understand, and they say, wow, there's this beautiful blue planet out there, and we think it's habitable. It's crazy. It's like within a certain distance of the sun and blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, well, what, what's on this planet? Uh, it looks like a lot of water. Anything else? Land. Is that it? Yeah, it looks like some dogs and people following behind them. We think the dogs are the kings. We're not sure. That's a Seinfeld joke. I give them a credit. But anyway, what would they say? The earth is made up of water and land. So what are they trying to say here? This being who is either Jesus or represents Jesus, comes with the power of Jesus, he is sovereign over what? Everything. Everything. Verse 4. When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, keep secret what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. Are you kidding me? That's like not fair. How many of you guys have little kids? 
Okay, six, five, and almost two. And you know how we communicate when they're in the room? We spell. <laughs> so if I want to say something to my wife, hey, how was your day? And I, I had a rough day, you know. What happened? I'm trying to spell it. Or if I want to take them out somewhere the other day, hey, hey, Rach, what? What do you think if we uh, T-A-K-E, the B-O-Y-S, out for I-C-E-C-R-E-A-M, and my son, who's learning to spell, goes, oh, ice cream! <laughs> Newman. Like, man, I keep telling her, you've got to learn Pig Latin. She doesn't know it. I'm like, Spanish something. Meet me halfway here. Can I text you? Okay, so the other day I said something to my wife. She was asking about my day, and I was spelling out some things. At first I was mumbling, then I noticed I were listening here, so I switched from mumbling to spelling. And uh, my one son picked up, and he goes, Daddy, what does, and I don't remember what it was, but he said, what does that spell? And I got down on his level. I said, don't worry about it. He said, what do you mean? Come on, Daddy, what does it spell? And I said, it means I wanted to say something to your mom. I didn't want you to know what it was. He goes, come on, Daddy. I said, do you trust your daddy? Yeah, but what is it? I'm like, do you trust your daddy? Yeah, but I want to know what it is. I know, but do I provide for you? Dad, not this again, you know. No, do I love you? Do I care for you? Do I make sure you're safe and well kept for? Yes, then you don't need to know. You just need to trust me. I see this is, there's two messages for today, and one may be for you and the other one for someone else, but this is the first one. You've got to get this. God doesn't tell you every answer to every question you have, and that's hard. See, when life is out of control and earthquakes and famines and cancers and disease and death and suffering and backbiting and devouring and gossip and slander and rumors are happening and you cry out, why God? And his answer is silence. It's hard. But it's often his answer. Go all the way back. There's a book in the Old Testament. It's one of my favorite books. Someday I'll preach it. I just haven't had a chance yet. It's called Job. You'll notice you found it if you're new to this thing because it looks like Job. Now, here's the short version. Here's the MNV, the Matt Nickerson version of the book of Job. So Satan is wandering around in heaven. By the way, fascinating when Jesus says, and says any other service, and Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven. Is it possible before Jesus showed up, Satan had free reign to wander around heaven, and now he's not allowed, and that's part of the reason he's ticked. Satan is walking around in heaven, and he goes up to God, and God's playing games with Satan. Hey, uh, have you noticed my servant Job? Satan's like, Yes. He's a good guy. He loves me, serves me. No, he does. He, the only reason he loves you and serves you is because you protected him. You've blessed him in every way. You take away your blessing, God, and he'll curse you to your face. No, he won't. Yes, he will. No, he won't. All right, you can do whatever you want to him, but don't touch Job. And Satan comes down and kills all of Job's kids, kills a whole bunch of his animals, tears apart his company. Everything falls apart, and Job is sad, but he praises God, and Satan is raging. He's angry, and now he's seen in heaven, and God is, hey, 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 Satan, how'd it go? Yeah, well, the only reason he won't curse you is because like every human, he's selfish. You, you hurt him and not his kids. You hurt him and not his company. He'll curse you to your face. No, he won't. Yes, he will. No, he won't. Fine. You could do it, but you're not allowed to kill him. Satan comes down and inflicts Job with boils from head to toe. And the rest of the book of Job, that's the first few chapters. The rest of Job is Job depressed, sitting with his friends while they try to console him. But here's how their consoling goes. Job, you must have sinned against God. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. You had. God would never do this to you unless you did something evil. I didn't do something evil. 
Now, let me just be clear real quick. We don't know if Job is a literal person or a story intended to teach us something, and I don't want to get way off on that. I believe he was literal. I do. I don't know for sure, but I believe he was literal. But regardless, the story is the same. But because Job was human and he wasn't Jesus, he wasn't perfect, and that's the point. Even though Job was a good man, he wasn't perfect, suffering still happened to Job. And as Job, as the story goes on, Job's life gets harder and harder and harder, and his wife is not helpful. She's like, just curse God and die already. He's like, thank you for blessing me. Give me the kids, take the woman, come on, God, help me out here. (laughs) We get to chapter 38, and all the way to 41, and God shows up, and here's what God says. Okay, Job, you've been asking me questions. Your friends have been accusing me a lot of things. Job, it's my turn to ask some questions, and you're going to answer. Man, go read these later. And God says, okay, Job, tell me. You're so great. Where were you when I put the stars in the sky? Go ahead, Job, because you can answer that one, right? And Job, where were you when I separated the waters and raised up dry land? Job, you know how I did that, right? Go ahead. Come on. You know everything. So tell me, Job. Oh, you don't know that one? Hey, Job, what about the horse? Oh, so beautiful with its mane and so fast. You can explain to me how it does that, right? Or how about the ostrich? Such an amazing bird can't fly and steps on its eggs, right? Why did I do that? How about the lion, Job? You know the lion out in the field? How exactly does it get food when it's hungry? Oh, wait, you aren't there to take care of it? I am, Job. And God just goes on thing after thing after thing. And at the end of this message, here's what Job says, Job chapter uh, 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything because you just proved it, and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It's me. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now now I have seen you with my own eyes, and I take back everything I said. And I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Now, why do I say that story? Because through the entire book of Job, you know what God never does for Job? He never tells him why. Not once. But you know what he does do for Job? God shows up and for four chapters, God says, Job, me, me, me. Job, God is good. Job, God is powerful. Job, God is wise. Job, don't you understand that I'm doing things you can't even fathom? You can't even begin to wrap your minuscule finite brain around what I'm doing, Job. You don't need to know everything you want to know. You just need to know that the one who does know is good and powerful and faithful and just, and he has not forgotten you. And maybe above everything else today, you need to know that. Because when life is out of control and it's raging and it hurts and it's painful and loved ones are sick or dying and you wonder, God, why? And he doesn't answer and he's silent. You need to know it's not because he's absent. It's just that he has things going on that are far bigger than you could ever understand. So the question is, do you trust him? And that doesn't mean there aren't answers to some questions, but oftentimes there aren't. So when God says, he will make all things good for those who love him, he literally means all things. 
So why at the end of Revelation we see God says he will take his fingers and wipe every tear from our eyes. He will make it good. But we live here now. Revelation chapter 10, verse 6, B to 7. There will be no more delay. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. In other words, there will come a moment where God says, enough! It's time. And we'll wonder, why not now? Why not now? Why not now? All I know is when he says enough is enough, it will be enough. So here's the question we keep asking. So what do we do? What do we do? Especially when life is really, really hard, what do we do? Here's answer number one. There's two answers. Answer number one. I kind of already told you, but here it is. You live on the good news of God's love for you. You live on that. You feed on it, and you keep preaching the gospel to yourselves and to each other. Here's what that means. It's simple, but it's hard. That means you every day remind yourself, God is faithful, he is good. He is faithful, he is good. He will never fail me, and he's never changing. And one day he will come back and make all things good. I can hang on to that. I can trust that. I don't know how. I don't know when. But I know it. I know it. I know it. And you do this to each other. You use words and actions and love and service to each other to say, look, I know you're ready to quit. I know you're tired. I know you're barely hanging on. Don't give up. He is good. He will make good. Don't quit on him. Some of you are here today because you were ready to quit, and so Someone invited you and you're just barely hanging on. I'm begging you, don't quit. The entire book of Revelation is written to people like you who are struggling and I'm telling you, don't quit because he will make good. So keep reminding yourself of his faithfulness and his love and his kindness and his mercy and trust him. I love the way Charles Spurgeon says this. Charles Spurgeon says, whether I am up or down, The Lord Jesus Christ is the same. Whether I sing or sigh, the promise is true and the promiser is faithful. Whether I stand on the summit or am hidden in the veil, the covenant stands fast and everlasting love abides all the time, I would add. Revelation 10, verse 8. Then the voice from heaven spoke to me again. Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, this is John, and I told him to give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. And it was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. Now, what in the world is going on here? Well, first of all, this is a picture. This happened to Ezekiel. He was told to take a scroll, so he took a scroll and he ate it. It's like maybe literal for the prophet. That doesn't mean you need to go home and write up a scroll and eat it. That's not what's going on here. There's a picture. It's John's connecting to Ezekiel, but even more than that, why is it sweet to the taste and sour in the stomach? Well, maybe the angel was his mother-in-law. I don't know. There's two options. I tend to think both are right. I like the second one better. If you make me choose, here's your two choices. Number one, the gospel is sweet for us who are saved. If you don't know what the gospel is, if you're visiting, here's the gospel. You've heard this phrase, right? The gospel is the good news. The good news is this. God hates sin. Hates sin. Hates sin. And he burns with an unquenchable fire towards sin. And he will justify his wrath against sin and he can either justify it in his son Jesus death on the cross or 
ultimately in eternity one day when he punishes Satan and everyone who hasn't turned to Jesus for life. And the good news is those of us who love God have turned to Jesus for life, so it's sweet to taste. But why is it sour in the stomach? Well, for many of the people in John's day who were coming in faith at Jesus, that meant they weren't allowed in their families anymore. They were Jewish or they were kicked out of their, their social gatherings by their Roman friends and they were being persecuted and arrested. So it's sweet to taste because it means eternal life, but in this life between now and Jesus' second coming or I go home, there's a lot of pain. So it's sweet and sour. That's option A. Option B, I like option B a little bit better, but I probably think it's both. Option A, same. It's sweet to taste because it's life for me, but it's also sour because as I proclaim the message of the good news of Jesus, not everybody will accept it. Even here right now, I know some of you are gonna leave and you'll never come back and you'll never go to another church again and you will have given up on the one chance at life you had. And it makes me sick to my stomach. I lose sleep over it. I ache over it because I want you to know him, but I can't make you know him, but I've got to tell you the truth. And if you don't accept it, it will mean eternal damnation. And nobody wants to talk about that, but let me tell you, friend, you don't want it. And so it's sweet for me and it's sour for you. And an old Christian proverb says this, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And the same gospel message that makes some fall on their knees in humility and say, save me, God, I'm a wretched sinner, makes some harden their heart and say, no way, any God who could do that, I'd never follow. And you don't know what you're saying. You don't know what you're saying. So answer two. Answer one is we preach the gospel we live at. Answer two is this. We trust the Holy Spirit to use you, to use us, to take the gospel to everybody regardless of the cost. You know the reason I celebrate those numbers at the very beginning? I celebrate them not because, hey, some people started giving some money to the church. I'm thankful for that, but guess what? If we had no money, we'd still advance the gospel at all costs. We would, I don't know how, but we'd do it. Because the reality is it takes money to take the gospel out. It takes money to fund missionaries. God is gonna get it done. And so no matter the cost, whether I have to self-sacrifice my own life, my own family, my own health, my own money, whatever it costs, I must take the gospel to the ends of the earth. I must take this message that is sweet to everybody who eats it and is sour to some because they won't accept it, but I have to go. I have to tell them. Look at what Jesus says next to John, Revelation chapter 10, verse 11. And then I was told, and then, the very next thing, you must prophesy again about many people nations, languages, and kings. And in case you weren't sure how to count them, let's count it one more time. One, two, three, four. Why? Because he's saying everybody, John, you have this message that's sweet for you, it's sour for others, but you must take it to everybody, to the ends of the earth. You must get the word out no matter what it costs you. It's gonna be hard. There's gonna be war. There's gonna be persecution. People are gonna get sick and die, and so you have to get them life at all costs. Get them life John and John is writing this letter to churches and saying I know it's hard keep giving life to everyone and don't stop until he comes back and that's the message of Jesus Christ right there now I realize chapter 11 is one of the most debated outside of maybe chapter 20 chapters in all the Bible and if you ever read the left behind series they talk about two literal witnesses I don't have time to go into chapter 11 real deep, which is, you know, you would love for me to do that, but I think the point of chapter 11 is to give the visual illustration of chapter 10. I'll cover it quickly and realize I'm leaving a lot out there that is undiscussed, but the main point is everything I've said. Chapter 11, 
These two witnesses show up, and John is told to measure the temple. If you know anything about the old temple, there's the outer court where the Gentiles were allowed, and then there was the inner court Jewish men were allowed, and there's the inner, inner, inner court where the, Holy, or the, the high priest was allowed to go in and meet with God once a year. And he's told to measure the temple. But if this book was written like I believe it was in, in AD 95, there is no temple anymore. The temple's been torn down by the Romans already. And so at this point, there's no temple. What is he measuring? He's visually measuring something. Those on the outside will be out and those on the inside will be in. It's like the 144,000. God is going to count every single person who will be saved. Not one person who's supposed to be saved will go unsaved, not one. The problem for you and me is we don't know who they are. We don't know who all the people God's gonna save are. He knows in his foreknowledge, so what's our job? It's to proclaim the sweet and sour message to them and let them respond. And then there's two witnesses, and I want you to notice this. Go read through later how these two witnesses mirror Jesus and their activity. I believe these two witnesses are either Jesus or they are the body of Christ representing Jesus on earth. Here's why. Because the Bible has a profound connection to the number two. Go look it up. And I may be stretching it here with some of these. Like, how about this? There's two animals that come alongside to get on the boat with Noah. What are they saying when two animals are coming along? Well, there's male and female. They had to procreate. Well, of course. But are those two animals also not pronouncing judgment as a last sign of hope for everybody else watching these animals come from all around to get on a boat like wow this is like a last chance for them to respond right how about this deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15 you must not convict anyone of a crime on the testimony of only one witness the facts of the case must be established by the testimony of what two or three witnesses. In other words, if I come in and say, hey, this guy killed my sister, and they say, well, can you prove it? Well, I was there, and also this guy was there. Okay, well, you have two witnesses or three witnesses. They could be guilty. If it's just me, they can't be guilty. So what is that saying? God is saying you need two to stand and testify to be a witness against somebody, either guilty or innocent. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 18, verse 19 and 20. I also tell you this, if two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three are gathered together as my followers, I am there among them. Go read Matthew 18 later. Here's what you'll see. It's about church discipline. Jesus says, if somebody has sinned against you, you go to them and you tell them their sin. And if they repent, praise God, you won back your brother. If they don't repent, you take someone else with you. And you go to them, and the two of you can confirm their sin together and say, you have sinned against me or us. You need to repent. If they still won't repent, you take them back to the leadership of the church. Then you have them and say, look, we're here to confirm you have sinned. And if that person still won't repent, then you hand them over to Satan. Why? Because it's a pronouncement of judgment. We've told you the truth, and now you have a choice to make. How about one more? Luke chapter 10, verse 1. The Lord now chose 72 other disciples, and he sent them ahead in what? Pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. You know what these 72 disciples did? They went out and proclaimed the message of Jesus, a sweet and sour message. These 72 broke up into twos. Notice how Peter always travels with John in the book of Acts. Paul always with Barnabas or with Silas. They never go alone. Why? Because it takes two to testify and proclaim the message of the good news of Jesus. And when two witness, there's strength and there's power and there's finality. Now here's the point. Don't ever do this life alone. 
And you must take the gospel message to the ends of the earth, but don't do it alone. No man is an island. If you think you're strong enough to make it through this life, temptations and persecutions and trials alone, you're wrong. You're wrong. You need someone else. You need at least one other person in your life speaking truth, speaking life, speaking a message of hope, calling you out, partnering with you, confirming what you're saying. You need this. It's from God. Which brings us full circle back to Mark chapter 10. Or sorry, verse 13. Chapter 13, verse 10. For the good news must first be preached to all the nations. And let me just say this. There are roughly 2 billion people in the world today who have no, no access to the gospel. I want you to miss that. They have no access to the gospel. They don't have a Christian in their life. We must take the gospel to them. This is why P.V. John and our missionary in India, when he goes into a village, if they have a church, he just packs up and leaves and goes to the next village. They don't even mess with it because they have the gospel. A billion people in India, 97% don't have the gospel, so he just goes to the next village and proclaims Jesus there. And we must keep taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let me close with this. Don't start wrestling, please, because as soon as I say we're going to close, everybody starts messing with stuff. Just hear me out, and then you can mess with stuff. In a minute, we're going to take communion. We're going to close with communion. And here's the point of communion. When you drink that bread, I didn't say that right. (laughs) If you put them together, it does liquefy. As you eat that bread and you drink that juice, here's what you're doing. You're celebrating the life of Jesus. You're celebrating the hope of Jesus. You're celebrating the ministry of Jesus. John, the same guy who wrote this book, you know what he tells us? If you confess your sins to God, he is faithful and true and will forgive you. Here, some of you in this room right now, you got some sin, some undealt with sin in this room. And you need to deal with it right now. And as you take that bread and you take that juice, I just want you to confess it to God. Say, God, here I am, here I am. I know I've not been living for you. I need to preach the gospel to myself. You are good, you are faithful. I can trust you, you will forgive me. Some of you in this room, you're in a good place with God, and here's my request of you. While we take communion, would you just pray for others in this room? Dear God, please convict the hearts of sinners in this room. God, people who came here today and thought they were just gonna go home and watch football this afternoon, God, would you just move in them, stir in them to, to make Jesus their Lord and Savior, to choose today, choose today to have a sweet tasting life in you. And just pray that God would move in this church and in this community. And look, if you are ready to give your life to Jesus today, you may not have planned on it, it doesn't matter. We'd love to tell you about that. If you want to get baptized today, we got all the clothes. Don't worry about it. While the rest of us are taking communion, you just kind of come down the aisle here, meet some of our staff over here under this curtain, and just say, I don't even know what's next, but I need Jesus. And we'll walk you through it. Now let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. Jesus means hope and life for us. And so, God, we thank you that we are no longer under your wrath. No matter what, we're not under your wrath. So, God, move in us, stir in us to be open and honest before you. We don't have to hide or play games. Our entire lives are laid bare before you. So, Father, would we come before you openly, honestly, in humility, and would you lift us up? Humble those of us, God, who are too prideful and arrogant and think we can figure it out and fix it on our own. God, humble us under your mighty right hand that we might be lifted up in mercy. God, for anybody in this room who doesn't know you, God, I beg you, please move in them, stir in them, draw them into your presence. Please may these words penetrate their hearts that, God, they might have life and life eternal. God, 
God, I read Revelation 22, 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. God, may they come right now. In Jesus' name.